forced to get off of home base. We thought it was too dangerous. They said too many people are getting hurt. There were 10 people that were taken off site. A lot of people have been talking about these fires, but it was so much more than that. Podcast 99. Yeah, Podcast 99. We are back again. This is a, another installment of our Survivor Stories. Today's Survivor Story is... Uh, I'm very excited. I feel like we're very proud that we were able to to get you here. <laughs> I'm sitting here with the legendary Jenny Askew. Hi. Yes, yes. Okay, so if you don't know anything about our guest today... She, you know, she was a contributor for Rolling Stone. She was on Behind the Music on the Britney Spears episode, which is amazing. Um, also, you've been on the show. I'm from Rolling Stone. You've done a lot. She hosts her own podcast, LSQ, uh, as well as a show on XM. Um, yep. You are very music. <laughs> I am. You are a music am, person. Yeah, I'm focused very narrowly on one tiny portion of one thing. Okay, great. Yes, but but you do it well. Thank you. And it's it's very cool that you're here because you went to Woodstock 99. And going to Woodstock 99 in our book makes you a survivor. <laughs> Truly. Yeah. No, it was uh, I sometimes I forget and then I remember and then I'm like, "Wow, that was crazy. That was like an action adventure movie." <laughs> Die Hard, the concert. <laughs> Die Hard the musical, if you will. Okay, so we're going to go into this. This is going to be, I, I, I tend to be a little long-winded, so just stop me. Uh, <laughs> it, you know, when, when you remember something, because I know that details are hazy at best. Yes, uh, as I with, remember a right. few things clearly. <laughs> right. Well, as with, you know, many of our other guests, you know, especially the attendees, they very little. I mean, some people thought they saw bands that didn't play. Uh, wow. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I, that makes me feel better about only remembering like four bands. And uh, but also it was my first assignment for Rolling Stones. So it was like I didn't even at that point have anything to compare the overall experience of like traveling somewhere on a reporting assignment. Uh, and especially for Rolling Stone, um, like. Yeah, I was already sort of like taking it all in. So and I didn't really have context for a festival much at that point. Like I had been to Lollapalooza when it was still a traveling festival. Right. Yes. Yeah. And Lollapalooza was really kind of at the time the only festival as festivals we know them now kind of are. Yeah. Would you say yeah. That? I mean, I get I get. Yeah, I guess so. In retrospect, like that it was. Yeah, that was my very first festival and I had no idea what to expect. And um. And it was, yeah, more hostile conditions there even than what you're used to now, I think, in modern festival culture. Yeah, you okay. Know? Yeah, for, for sure. Slightly so, where you're just like, it was acceptable still for festivals to be like early days of Warp Tour, where it's just like on a, on concrete somewhere, and you're just like, this isn't comfortable per but se. But people put up with it because music was the most important thing. Nowadays, the festival is the most important thing, I feel like. Yeah, like, Especially truly. at like a Coachella or something like that. It's it's not really about the music. That's why they booked the biggest acts in the planet, because that way the, you know, the tiniest people in the world will come in, in a sense. It's like when you get the biggest act, it trickles down to the lowest common denominator of society. So now it's of, like everyone would want to go. You yeah. Know I mean, rather than it being like really cool bands and underground stuff and things that would be kind of fulfilling. <laughs> yeah, totally. Although, I mean, say what you will about Coachella. Um, 
and that and that sort of festival like its success spawned so many great smaller festivals where yeah people go just because they're genuinely you know to me the fact that a festival would sell out before its lineup is announced feels like meh but in certain in the cases of certain festivals it really is where you're like i know it's going to be awesome i know it's going to be great music i love music and i just want to go see some and that's i'm willing to spend money to have that be my experience but yeah it's like the the versions of it where that gets sort of twisted and you know they're yeah they they didn't exist before really and so it's kind of crazy to think um how much more difficult it was to plan right Woodstock 99 <laughs> right and i mean and there was Woodstock 94 which is you know what we know through our research was a big mess too you know what i mean right. there, there was tons and tons of problems but that's not how it's remembered it actually went so well that it's not remembered at all <laughs> you know what yeah, i mean it, i mean it, it yeah just i don't i don't i don't remember cool much stuff, about it you remember, yeah, you i don't remember I mean? much but, about it but i was you know in 1994 like yeah i guess pretty into indie rock and and the kind of stuff that was going on at woodstock 94 was like not my shit so because i don't know which year the the um lollapalooza traveling lollapalooza was but it was probably around then as well that mm-hmm. That I went to Lollapalooza, it was like Sonic Youth and Hole were headlining that year, co-headlining that year. And I went to see Built to Spill, because yeah. I'm hella indie. <laughs> I love Built to Spill. All right. So, and also, do you think it's weird now, uh, th- this was something I was going to save till the end, but since we're on the topic. With, the fe- with festival culture being where it's at, and you being so involved in music and having seen so many different changes, do you think it's weird that Woodstock 99 kind of isn't mentioned in the narrative of music history as much as it maybe made an impact on like you know what i mean it's yeah, like with how popular yeah. festivals are you'd think that especially with like this fire festival thing you'd think that there would be this huge callback to 99 or oh here's what we learned but i feel like it's just something that pop culture swept under the rug yeah i mean i guess i guess it does feel like that even even like when i start thinking about how crazy it was and definitely when fire festival was happening it it reminded me like yeah you know uh, this that seems sort of like child's play no disrespect to the amazing like na- the amazing mayhem that apparently right. fire festival was i don't want to no disrespect down- to the, i thought you were going to say like to the people that lost no. money no you're like, no to, to no the disrespect <laughs> no disrespect to like the just uh, like wow yeah. epicness of yeah. of that experience i'm sure felt just as terrible as Woodstock 99 felt to people who went there. But yeah, we'll, yeah it's like, we'll, oh we'll yeah, that, that. That, that's, that was where, it, that was where it all started was, uh, was Woodstock 99, the actual fire fest. Right. Well, we like to fire. say it all really started at Altamont. Right. You, you know what I mean? I mean, you can trace these, but, and then you have, um, also in the, I don't remember what year it was, but that woman was struck by lightning during the Tibet, uh, festival. I guess and so. I the, would, the, I get, yeah, I there's guess there's a I, history of bad concerts, right, you know? Right. But. Right. Of course. But, the idea that yeah, certainly Altamont was and the original Woodstock, which did not go the way it was pictured and, and sold. But and the, and those are examples of poor planning. Ultimately, why did you invite Hell's Angels, et cetera? Lack of security, that kind of thing. But I think Woodstock 99 and Fire Festival are uniquely similar in their greed mixed in with lack of planning. Like best intentions, Woodstock OG and right. Altamont, hopefully as well. I don't know all of the details of that history, but it was generally kind of the same just thing. But in order culturally to culturally volatile corners, yeah. situation, and mm-hmm. you know, but 
Um, yeah, poor planning can all be attributed to greed, but I think Woodstock 99, the sense of commerce really was apparent immediately. Like the night that we just to jump ahead. Yeah. yeah. If you don't mind. No, 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 no. Um, the night I went with a team from Rolling Stone and yeah, I started at rollingstone.com in like a few weeks before that, I want to say that summer, summer of 99. Um, and, uh, and found out and I was working for the website and we were doing news stories. And so it was obvious immediately that we were going to be covering Woodstock 99. And there was a team from the magazine going and they had rented a house and there was going to be like a dozen people and photographers. And we were all staying at this right. house. that uh, was like a drive. It sounds away. like a good time. It sounds, <laughs> it sounds like a good Cue time. the suspenseful music as we drove up the highway and, and also, to upstate New York. J- just to pause for a second. For you listeners that might be a little younger, uh, <laughs> Rolling Stone is still one of the most respected music, you know, publications in the world. But in the in 1999, they were the top. Like you know, people talk about Pitchfork nowadays, and, they, yeah. and there's these other. But it's like no, it used to be fat fucking magazines that were awesome, and if yeah. you worked for it, them, you were considered to be awesome. <laughs> and 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 that's just how it fucking was. Rolling Stone was the coolest thing I I picture like working for at that time. Right. Yeah. I mean, it 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 felt like uh, intimidating, definitely. Um, and like a lot of pressure for sure to even be at Rolling Stone having come from like indie shit. And I was, uh, I had worked at CMJ for years before that while I was like finishing college and like starting my master's and stuff. And, uh, and I wasn't, didn't, it's not like I was like, someday I'm going to be a reporter for Rolling Stone and go to festivals. I just, It's just like, oh, I work at RollingStone.com now and I have to write news stories. Okay, I think I can figure this out. And then within a couple of weeks, myself and another person from RollingStone.com and a bunch of people from the magazine were going up to cover the festival. I was going to be filing daily news stories. And this is before. Yes, it's, you know, early ish Internet, not that early, but it's not the kind of bombardment of like tiny little news stories all day, every day, every day there was going to be, that was it. I was writing the entire right, yeah, day's it, digest yeah. of what happened, sort of live review, sort of reporting. But also I had been assigned for the magazine, which was not something I was expecting to happen. Sitting in my cube at down the hall at rollingstone.com at our row of cubes to have an editor from the magazine come down and be like, Hey, we've got an assignment for you for our package of, of, uh, of Woodstock stories. And he hands me this article from the New York times about this psychiatrist, um, Mm -hmm. who was, um, being sent to Woodstock 99 to set up, uh, a triage unit for people who might be ODing on psychedelics or whatever drugs they might. And was that Dr. John Connell? No, that, is that, because that, that was Doctor Ramirez. Okay, yeah, because um, you interviewed a couple different people. Yeah, Doctor Ramirez in the kind of help the medic help. Exactly, yeah. Doctor Ramirez set up the unit, and I guess he had been like at the original Woodstock, or was like he was a hippie. So it's like the uh, um, what were they called? The wavy gravy thing, the the psychedelic first aid tent that they had at the original Woodstock in the farmhouse. Yeah, exactly. And, and I went and interviewed him at this unit that he had set up and he was, he was, um, and I hope he's still with us. Uh, awesome dude. Um, (laughs) said some really interesting stuff and, 
really had the kind of head about it that you would want. And, and, you know, I'm sure there's nothing like that at any festival nowadays. And, and maybe there should be just like sketchy, like ranch raves. It's funny that testing kits. It's funny that they (laughs) come to think of it had so far above and beyond, not, you know, no, not above and beyond. It should be expected. Festivals should be the, like, you know, a mecca of safety and tending to you. But what realistically what they do offer at festivals, you know, it's like, wow, I can't believe they went that far above and beyond. Cause it was like, remembering now it's like a big space they had set up. Like, you know, it wasn't right in the thick of things, but you could right. have been golf carted there, I guess, or something. Um, and he was just like so great. And it was a free thing that if you were just tripping, um, you could go there. And they also did see a lot of the people who were victims of sexual assault at Woodstock 99. It, it ended up in that in that sort of triage as well. But anyhow, there had been the story in the Times about this Dr. Ramirez. And and so it had been handed down from Jan Wenner himself that Rolling Stone was to have a piece on this guy as well. And I, it was. Mm-hmm. My first assignment for the magazine was to go and profile him, basically. And I was like, holy shit, he turned out to be awesome and really interesting. So it was like, OK, it's not going to be that that I could see how it was going to work out. Um, that piece didn't end up running because uh, Woodstock 99 turned out to be such an epic shit show. that yeah. there was like, They're like, well, your cute little story about this awesome ponytailed psychiatrist is... <laughs> Actually, they told me that they needed to make room for Kurt Loder to have more space to rant and rave. And I was just like, oh, oh yeah. And yeah, that's like, um, it's like, what? That's was- in this issue, I, I believe. Oh, yeah, exactly, I, I'm sitting yeah. here with an issue of Rolling Stone <laughs> exactly. uh, with the cover story of what's like, yeah, Kurt Loder has like four pages. Oh, yeah, because he was like, you know, as a former Rolling Stoner, he he was, you know, he was like, I want to file something. I mean, that was if I'm remembering correctly, because they had all these, they, you know, redirected their energies to how to cover it you know once what happened happened Mm. but and it became a whole different landscape and that was interesting to witness just like from like you know nerdy magazine journalism standpoint but kurt loader if i remember correctly had sort of volunteered that he wanted to write something about it and so there they had to get rid of a bunch of other stuff which was the first time i learned the cruel lesson that sometimes your piece gets cut when they told me i thought it meant that my piece had been abbreviated until i found out it meant it was just not running and i just the tears uh, sprang to my yeah. eye, to mine eyes. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I can't. Don't cry at work. Yeah, Try yeah. not to cry There's at no work. There's no crying in music journalism. <laughs> <laughs> like Kurt Loder is Tom Hanks. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's okay because you're here now, and we got to hear about it, and this is you know going to be heard by millions of people. Yeah, oh the my world. god, totally. Yeah. Okay, so you're arriving there. What, what or you get the news that you're going to do the story? What were your expectations? Obviously, no one expected it was going to go the way it did. But were you like, this is going to be this cultural landmark? Was the expectation that it was going to be a real Woodstock? Or was it that this will be interesting to see how it turns out? You know, I mean, it's hard to say again, because I was so new and just like, what's well, everything? I didn't know. This is pre 9-11, not to make everything pre or post 9-11. <laughs> it was pre Y2K. Yeah. Because, um, well, not to be like that about it, but post 9-11, if the mayhem that happened at Woodstock 99 had happened, it would have been triggering for everyone on a whole other level, you know? Um, and, yeah, and, and people probably would have, like, they wouldn't, I don't think the police would have stood for it. No one would have known, what, to, yeah, really no one known what yeah. to make of it. It would have been, yeah. And so maybe that's why historically it feels a little bit downplayed and there feels like something maybe a little quaint about it in a way that's not quite fair. But 
it wasn't as scary at like the f- actual turmoil at the end of it wasn't mm. as scary as thing as the fear I've felt since then about similar kinds of things, <laughs> I guess. So that's I guess I don't know. I didn't go into it thinking it was going to be this major overwhelming experience. I just sort of felt like fresh about it. And I think the attitude of the the dudes um, from the magazine who were there covering uh, seemed to be like the sort of cynicism about stuff that those guys had, which was just like, let's see what this is. There wasn't right. like a hoo wee. Although, you know, some of the guys on our team like do love partying and we're excited to party at, with fat boy slim, you know? Right. And so that was <laughs> the fun. rave. Yeah. That was fun energy to be around. We had a really awesome posse. Like everyone on the team was, was like fun. And, um, and like Rob Sheffield for one, like I was going to bring him up. Yeah. Yeah. He, you, yeah. you should talk to him. I, uh, he, although we would I love to, we've brought him up on the show I would several say times. He, yeah. I feel like, and I'm just laughing cause I love Rob so much, but, and I, that was how I met him and our friendship began at Woodstock. 99, oh really? Amazing. Another the, positive. Yeah. Sitting on note. the porch talking about the kinks. But he, he was the most traumatized of us by because his assignment was to, <laughs> it comes across in the article. His assignment was to go like hang out with the kids and stuff. And so there was one night where we were, you know, he, we were leaving him there for the night. We were all going back to the house and we're like, OK, we're leaving Rob here. And already by then we were like, is it safe to leave him? He's such a sweet man. And uh, the next day when we finally caught up with him, like he wouldn't talk to any of us and he went to sleep in my car and we were just like, is he OK? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Oh, man. We're, we'll do a, a side <laughs> thing. Like, on, he slept on that, with his yeah. head on a pizza box or something. Oh, yeah. He thought he was going to like meet some vibey kids and like find a chill place to chill. And it was not like that. Yeah, no, his it's not his, that festival because the the Rolling Stone like the issue that I have here, which I guess is the quintessential issue with yeah, the Woodstock '99. Yeah, that's the big one. Yeah, that's yeah. the big one. We even though it doesn't include our our friend Jenny's article, it's fine. It's but fine. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's split up into three parts. So you have the on the grounds guy, which is Sheffield, and then right. you have I forget who who did the Matt, kind of backstage. Matt Hendrickson did. Yes. Uh, yeah, and then yeah. Kurt Loder does. And the I'm kind sure of overall. Matt Hendrickson would would be uh, not to speak for you, Matt. If you're listening in the future, but um, <laughs> I feel like Matt and Matt had an interesting experience because he yeah he was into like the raves and like going for it, and I feel the like... most mysterious part of the entire festival. Really? Oh yeah, there's no there's only uh, thirty to forty five seconds of footage of it and anything that we've seen, and we've seen footage that no one else has, and it's on the official DVD release, and it looks fucking crazy and i know that on the second night someone like accidentally drove like a truck with a half pipe that they were trying to load into the extreme sports zone into the fat boy slim rave and then yeah. people climbed the truck so yeah no one knows anything about it because it was too dark yeah, and we, it was after all the main bands d- ended. it was yeah. very dark so yeah that's amazing that he had a a story there yeah yeah i don't remember i feel like maybe that was the night he stayed over but uh, um but yeah, Matt Hendrickson, I feel like w- would would be up for talking to you. And he did all of the he did the big reported piece uh, that was, you know, the just the piece of, you know, just sort of straightforward right. reporting um, uh, about the festival, which obviously be- got kicked up a notch by the the last night and what ended up happening. Um, then if it had just been sort of creepy on a more low key level, I think he would have done, you know, would have been a more straightforward piece from him. And yeah, and then Kurt Loder, whose big piece, you know, was was right. uh, was kind of a centerpiece of the whole thing. Yeah, that was like the summation of of everything, the big send off. So you arrive. 
were you you were there the day before it started, right? So you got there on the Thursday. There was like the pre-show. Were you there for? Yeah, for, we for got that? there. Okay, we didn't. We weren't there. Now I understand. I'm laughing because I I couldn't remember what had happened because we got there. We drove up from the city and got there kind of late, and something had happened already. And I wondered. I was. I don't. In retrospect, I'm like, were we just checking out the site the night before? I guess we were, but yeah, there had been a pre-show there because, fa- and it took forever to get there because the, they didn't adequately anticipate the traffic. So you're no, trying to go up all. to Rome, New York, and there's like one roadway and you're like sitting there and you're like, wow, the sun is going down and this is summer <laughs> when that happens late. And finally, by the time we got there, yeah, the crowd had cleared out, but I guess we were allowed to go in anyway. And there were pizza boxes everywhere. I mean, the, before it started. Before the festival this actually is the started. This pre-show. <laughs> and I can still picture it. It's like one of the things I can picture is that night, empty festival. Was it Domino's? I, I don't I don't want to say Maybe it was Domino's because like I would have they would have they would have put their brand name it on was everything that style you, of pizza box. You yeah, know, you where just, it's like individual like shitty cardboard individual right. pizza boxes. Yeah, no, they're just like plain white from what we see in all everywhere. The, all the yeah, and already. And we were like, whoa, like what? And it just boded, <laughs> so eerie. It, it was so just not a place you were excited to go back to the next day, you know? And the next day is when the job actually started. The next day much. is when the job started. And we were so, but our house was awesome. <laughs> our house was so cool. I was like, I can't believe I get to stay here. It was like on a lake. We had like a, a, a you know, a deck, dock, deck, whatever. <sighs> we weren't really there at all during the day, but it was just like nice. And there were, everyone was really cool and fun to hang out with. And I met Rob Sheffield, obviously. And some other great people. Um, but uh, yeah. And then the next day we were, I guess, cause I was sort of floating around and eventually was going to interview the, the doctor, um, but also had to just keep my eyes on stuff for a daily filing. So I would try and go see some sets and we had a space in a backstage zone near where the portrait photographer was doing the official sort of Woodstock 99 portraits. Like the really nice, like glossy ones that you see. Where it's yeah. Like and it wasn't Danny Clinch, I don't think, but it was, it was maybe it was someone like that. And they, we were, I, we were near where their setup was and didn't really have too much to do. We had a little zone, um, but didn't see really much action. You could see artists sort of coming back and forth. I remember seeing Bush, you know, backstage. Oh, yeah. I was like, Gavin. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and, uh, that I guess that would have been the Friday, yeah. That Bush mm. and Corn yeah. played, and and uh, and I remember we got we were able to go watch Corn uh, from the platform side stage, like above the stage. Right, they down. had like the scaffolding. On yeah, the sides like of still the stage. classic, like festival. Like if you can get back there, you you always see people up on some scaffolding backstage. Who right. like we call the people on stage stage potatoes. And and we judge how popular a band was by the amount of stage potatoes that Interesting. are on, on the stage. Interesting, yeah. I Corn mean, had a lot. Right. I mean, modern festival standards, it's like gotten to a point where it's ridiculous and you're just like, oh, you might have several wristbands, but you do not have the correct wristband to watch Arcade Fire from the scaffolding. So get the bug out. <laughs> um, I try and have the correct wristbands sometimes. and But in that situation, I didn't even know. And we got a spot. Someone was coordinating something and. Uh, one of my colleagues and I got a spot uh, on the scaffolding and I was not a fan of corn at all. It was the opposite of what I liked, but it was intriguing and it was definitely viscerally sort of, I don't want to say terrifying, but there was something scary about the crowd and seeing them do a gesture that resembled like a Heil gesture. 
um, and on mass, you know, from that vantage point, especially because it was a band that I respected me, the, their musicality, but I, I was not a fan of, of the vibe. Right. It, you know, I remember being like, dear God, and feeling a sense of like, this is weird. Something- oh, when everyone chants, there's definitely like a very like old, like military, like marching kind of footage to it, like where you would see like, yeah, like thousands of soldiers, like in unison screaming something when the corn fans all sing along with the yeah. lyrics in the first song. It's like, holy shit, there's a lot of people here that are all on board. And that's even scarier than if they were just like showing up to see who was playing next. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was. I mean, I had never seen an audience from that point of view before. You know, you see like footage of like Queen playing at Wembley or something and you're like, whoa, and it's like daylight. But then it's like dark and there's just like a bunch of testosterone. And I, I mean, and again, we got there the night before and it was already like people living their worst life, you know, <laughs> like people just being like not respecting the fact that they were going to themselves be staying there in this spot for the next few days, which still amazes me when I experience festivals where the audience doesn't seem to respect themselves enough to take care of the environment for the few days that they're going to be there, let alone not to be like, it's your mother earth, but hello. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and you know, it is funny. All of the things that should be on brand for Woodstock to be like more hippy dippy, but really, really wasn't, you know, along with the famous, expensive water and i don't remember what was that do you know what the price was per bottle i don't recall it, there's a timeline here so it, <laughs> yeah so you know it starts with basically I scared a cat all- i scared a cat in my life. <laughs> yeah we got animals running around here it's crazy it's like what's like 99 uh so with the water the the whole thing is that the corporation that supplied all the vendors that actually sold it charged three dollars wholesale so you like the vendors that were selling the water had to pay three dollars just to get a single bottle so they were charging four dollars initially now, after that first day when the gates started breaking down and everyone started sneaking in, they realized how fast they were selling out and how pissed everyone was getting. So then they they kind of just started giving it away until Ogden, the corporation overseeing everything, was now, since you guys went through so much and you were fucking giving it away because you felt guilty about what you had to charge, we're going to charge you guys $5 per bottle of water. So you're going to need to charge <laughs> 7 to turn a profit on the shit you gave away the day before. So they ended up being $7 oh per God. bottle of water in the year 1999. Wow. Yeah. Which... which- which scaled for inflation would be it's like 12 bucks or something like that now wow yeah yeah but you know i I don't want to say they didn't know any better like it's not fair to say that um about something like water um but but they did have free water areas on the grounds like water fountains for the folks but people just fucking broke them to make mud piles yeah it's just sort of like well yeah and also just again going back to like there weren't like nowadays no one has any I'm looking at you, Fire Festival. Good mm. excuse for putting on a terrible, dangerous festival because there's just there's you know there's there's just a way it's done, and you can right. any number of competent people who can safely put together the logistics of a, a massive festival or festival scale to various sizes. So there's no excuse for it. Woodstock '99 truly was like a, a a you know popped up and a like Lollapalooza had wound down by then. I don't remember if Ozfest had started. I don't know. And Warp I know, Tour had started. And I know Coachella started October of that year. Right. Um, but yeah, it, it just wasn't a thing. It and wasn't especially, a thing. Like, you Woodstock know. was different in that, that they weren't like booking the coolest up and coming kind of underground or indie bands at the time that like, you know, alternative culture would like to see. They were booking 
the biggest fucking mainstream number one acts that there were, yeah. you know what I mean? And that brings a whole different crowd because you're not bringing music enthusiasts per se. You're bringing people that want to be part of it. Right. In yeah. that, in that, in the scope of that though, it resembles a radio festival, which was a thing that still, you know, um, may have got, grown in more recent years since festivals are popular, but was the sort of thing that longtime concert promoters, you know, um, should have known how to do even with a mainstream audience and when you say mainstream audience it's like is that a pejorative well no but it you know depending on the generation and right and the exactly. factors that you subject them to a uh, crowd can be more or less harmonious i suppose and i and i do wonder like because d- could the organizers have anticipated like if you put people in an uncomfortable setting with overpriced bad food and and few options and then you play really aggressive music the first couple of days. Right. Yeah. Um, like what's going to happen? They, they should have, you know, it's kind and of, there was really no repercussion either. You know, there wasn't enough security to stop anything really. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're just making sure no one stormed the stage at that point because they they still, were, Jewel still got a shoe thrown at her. Uh, everyone got a shoe thrown at her. And another <laughs> disturbing thing. Yeah. Oh, someone threw a, a Nerf Vortex football at Dave Matthews, like an actual football. Someone threw on stage at him. But another thing that we've noticed, unfortunately, in like almost every set that we've watched is no matter what the music is, whether it's corn or it's counting crows, it, it doesn't matter. Someone's being on camera sexually assaulted. You know, oh what I mean? like like the, like the groping and stuff like that. It it's happened during every set. Wow, that's disturbing. Yeah, I mean, uh, that was very real, and it's. Were it, you scared? Did you feel uncomfortable on the grounds there, like yourself? No, for that reason, I didn't. And I, but I was with people, and I was very sober, and uh, and on task, and um, had the best laminate you could have, pretty right. much. You know, yeah. um. So I didn't feel and I didn't feel any. And again, I yeah, I didn't feel any kind of visceral fear, except once you started hearing about stuff and then you feel not so much fear as just uh, terror of what might happen to anyone else. You know, just sort of just like this is happening to people. Where is that happening? Right. And what do we do? Right. Guys. <laughs> yeah. God. Um, which you know, no one did anything really, I suppose. And, and it's interesting because I only went back and reread, like, as I was coming here today, one of the follow-up things I wrote for the website, you know, as there was a lot of reporting to do, you know, in the aftermath of it to keep up with stories. Once you got the scope of how terrible it had truly been. Right. Um, that, you know, uh, Dr. Ramirez, I believe actually is who says that it's interesting, you know, just, when you the more people there are around, the less likely someone is to intervene in those kinds of situations because they assume someone else will do it. And um and, and perhaps this is an example of that as well as an example of any number of other overlapping factors, including not enough places announcing themselves as like enforcement of of safe space practices. The idea of safe spaces, though, I don't know when that t- term was coined right but would not have been something i uh, that would have been part of the vernacular at that point for sure oh not at all and i remember thinking like where do they take you you know and you heard about where people who were seriously injured in the mosh pit were taken and you could see people who you'd see crap you know people who were injured but you know the first day i remember like rob sheffield making a joke about because there were all these beautiful people with body paint naked with body paint 
was the first time I had seen something like that. And which it's fucking cool. Wouldn't be the last. Which it's fucking cool. <laughs> You're just like, holy shit, that looks amazing. And uh, and Rob had some joke about like they, they have to be bussing in professional like sort of people who look good with body paint as a way of life because right. they can't have just found <laughs> rando people within a short drive of Rome, New York who no. look that good naked body painted, which, <laughs> but it was like on day one, that was a funny observation, but then you started hearing about shit and it was sort of like, I don't know me coming from my perspective day one, you're like, Oh, this is glorious. Even though this festival's kind of whack, like to get to see something like that, that people felt comfortable doing that out i had never seen that in public before and so i was just like "Ooh, festival that's awesome <laughs> and then you hear like that 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 most of the vibe out there you know not backstage yeah. is that you're not safe and it's like oh fuck you know like the dawning reality of that by the time rob sheffield slept overnight because that was like friday night we went back friday saturday I feel like Roots played on Saturday with Erica Badu, like in the afternoon. And yes, or I think they might have played. That might have been first day. I'm trying. That to might think. have been Friday as well. Yeah, that was yeah. That's when Rob made the 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 joke about like how many beautiful people there were in the crowd. Well, that's when everything was kind of hunky dory. Yeah, and uh, that for a was while such until, an awesome until the set. sun went down. Once yeah. the sun went down, everything seemed to change, and it stayed. And then I, so Limp Bizkit yeah. was the second day. Yeah, Limp Bizkit right. was the second day, right before Rage, and then they, Rage was right before Metallica. So that's kind of like. The the climbing, yeah. yeah yeah and i don't even know where where i was was that the same night as the fat boy slim Ray? so yep. we must have gone back to the house because i wasn't there for everything i didn't see the limp biscuit set some of it you saw on tv on the news like back at the house and you saw the you know same image as everyone saw people crowd surfing on debris that they had broken off of something and you're like oh god it really has taken a turn over there um and it must have been around that time that word started to reach us that people were being assaulted in the crowd. Because, again, we were pretty sheltered from that stuff, although I guess Matt Hendrickson was probably out there talking to more people than I mm-hmm. was. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and then that became a scary reality. But then the last day, it sort of everything just happened all at once, and then it was over. It was just like it ended in, like truly in a burst of flames. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Com- completely. So, okay, so you're saying, like, after the first day is when the stories kind of start trickling and you're, you're starting to hear these negative things. Yeah, then, it's starting to feel did you weird. Go, you, okay, so that, that answers that question, because that's what we were wondering. We're like, wh- like, I always figured it happened after Corn, like, right after Corn, because that's the first set that you can watch if you watch all the Woodstock 99 sets in mm-hmm. order. That's the first one where you're like, holy shit, like. I can ex- I can totally see where this is going. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You, you like I mean? so, the enormity of the crowd and their energy, the and the energy they they had felt like a thing. Watching it from from my vantage point on the stage, I don't I don't know that I went home worrying about anything or thinking. You know, right. again, I was just I was just but seeing real- seeing those crowd surfers on that plywood. Uh, well, then <laughs> you're just like, oh fuck, yeah. yeah, for sure. And I think by that point, I was sort of over it just because I'm not used to being around people that much of the day, every day. And um, <laughs> and I mean, that many people, especially. And um, and that night, the plan was that our our dudes were going to go to the to the rave. So we went back to the house and then came back again. And um, and there was I just remember that night there was a lot of stress trying to get out of there. I like lost one of the guys in our crew 
and didn't want to- You went to the rave? Yeah, yeah. Can you tell me anything about it? Um, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) most of what I remember is just, it feels stupid to say that it's like, like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure or Harold and Kumar or something. It's from the vantage point of just like the dudes I was with and whatever they were saying or doing that was funny is like most of what I remember. So I remember that it was really dark and massive and like a warehouse vibe, which was cool. I'd been to shit like that and I was a fan of Fatboy Slim. So I, I want to check it out, but also knowing like was a nerd and knew I would want to get home early, you know, right, but yeah. I was like, I'll go with the dudes. One of my friends, Kenny, um, Kenny Weinstein, who's a publicist who you should you should talk to. His wife was pregnant at the time and he kept calling her because they were <laughs> they were like on whatever they were on him and and Matt Hendrickson. Um, yeah. And uh, <laughs> and there was a lot of talking and salivating and That's you can hilarious. leave the rest of your imagination. But <laughs> Ken kept calling his wife and telling her to put the phone to her pregnant belly as fat voice. And then. <laughs> Holding up the phone to hear Fatboy Slim, and it I want to talk to that baby. I know, right? <laughs> you can. That baby's like old now. Yeah, that is it. It's an old baby. Like Twenty years old. Yeah. Um, but but that was mostly what I remember. And then Hendrickson got annoyed with that and was just like, "I'm out of here." And he's just sort of danced off into the crowd. And I was like, "Okay, he's." I knew he's got it. He knew what he was doing. He was polished. And <laughs> and then I was sort of like, I guess my the plan was never for them to leave with me. They were going to do their thing. I think Sheffield was maybe staying over that night. And then myself and a couple of the, you know, more mellow people on our team were going to ride back in my car. I'm always the driver. So I was the driver. And we couldn't find like my boss from the website, Joe. We I like couldn't find him. And I was fucking losing it because it was my first assignment. I lost my boss. <laughs> At Tru- Woodstock 99. Well, also, at that point, you truly could not leave someone behind. Right. No, it's at different. At that point, yeah. you're just like, this place is fucked. And I'm not going back to our house 20 minutes away from here without one of the three people I'm supposed to leave with. And actually, now that I remember, who was it who persuaded me? It's fine. Let's just go. And then I get back to the house and he gets back shortly thereafter with two chicks. <laughs> the guy that I couldn't find. And I was so mad. <laughs> I was just like, what the F, man? I had been like losing my mind. Who taught, you know, I'm going to remember who, what sweet, sweet friend of mine was like, Jenny, it's fine. He's a grown man. He'll get back to the house. And I was like, but I can't leave him. It's terrible here. Well, that was your first big, yeah. like on the field. Like yeah, you got to exactly. do it right. Yeah. Exactly. No. I was like fucking 24 or something, oh you know, 25. Gosh. Yeah, yeah. Um, But Joe, it all worked out fine. Joe Rosenthal, love you, man. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you got back to the house. Okay. Um, <laughs> and then, and then the main thing for me in my storyline on Sunday was just trying to find Rob Sheffield and then worrying if Rob Sheffield was okay and upset. Um, and then hearing that Jewel had had things thrown at her. Yeah, we're doing a whole dedicated episode to the Jewel set because it's yeah. like... There's only, first of all, one woman act that played each day. The first day was Cheryl Crow, second day was Alanis Morissette, and third day was Jewel. Those are the only big female <laughs> names. They only had one a day, which is just like... I'm laughing, it's because history is terrible, you guys. I don't mean that. No, I don't no, think t- it's funny. No, but you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah so like the Jewel set is like this pinnacle moment where everything's about to like break down. It's but the also, last, it's like, just breath, like, but... what? why did they do that? What did they yeah, do? Yeah, why were are they you screaming doing? at Jewel to show her tits? No, Stop. but also just like, why did the programmers of the festival put jewel on at that slot it definitely that's what i remember us all sort of thinking like poor jewel but also just like what are like 
everyone knew what had happened the night before. Like, uh, wh- like, what are you doing? Right. Oh, I don't know. God. The last day definitely felt like a cleanup day. It's sort of like, oh, last day of the fest. OK, it's almost over. I probably did most of my reporting on the story with the doctor that day. And so was focused on that. And then, you know, planning on returning the following morning, we go back to the uh, house to do some writing and we're keeping up on the TV with what's going on. And breaking news, it's on fire. The festival that we just left is on oh fire. Oh my gosh. So we're like, holy fuck, we got to go back. <laughs> yes. So we get in the car and we go back and you could only get so close at that point. I think maybe one of the magazine people like got out and they were, were able to walk back or whatever. And I just ended up having to go back to the house. So I wasn't on site when the fires broke out. It's crazy to think that we tried to go back, but we had to, you know. Right. Well, you're a goddamn journalist. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's what you do. I don't know why. Like, it's just like, oh, yeah, I'm going to drive my rental car back to the um, like public emergency site or something. Right. You know, you're like, I'm driving to 9-11. Not really. When you you were coming back in, did you see like. Did it seem like there was a mass exodus coming out? Like, like was it like, like almost like a zombie movie or something? Like, did you feel like you were approaching something dangerous or was it just like, no, we're just going back to the festival. We just know that it's bad inside. No, the entire thing was a zombie movie. <laughs> I, like it, it wasn't until that it wasn't. Yeah, it was like it was a weird vibe. The whole thing felt bad the entire time you were there. It felt bad. Like, that's why I feel like I don't remember. It didn't feel like too much of a crescendo because from the first night it was kind of just like this is a bad idea this is uncomfortable people are aggro um this isn't really fun you know is this is this fun for anyone it's sort of like the kinds of things i feel like i remember wondering but i is this fun for anyone is a question i ask in many many times a week Totally. No, I, I definitely feel that. But I can have you know, uh, yes, it was fun for a lot of people that we've talked to. Really? Um, OK, cool. We, I mean, we've talked to people yeah, like sweet. like one guy, for instance, uh, I read his entire email on one of the episodes because it was so great. It was like pages long. And I just quoted him. But he was there. He was 15. He got a ticket the day before. Didn't know okay. he was going. Blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, oh, I, I drank tequila with Mexicans and I smoked weed with hippies and, and I became so open minded. And then all the fires broke out and some guy was leaving and he gave me all of his beer that he snuck in. And I just sat there and watched it all. And it wasn't that scary. And I, I feel like I'm a better person for being there. OK, so, like, great. The, good for that person. Yeah, the, there's that person. And then we interviewed a guy that played on the emerging artist stage, which was the stage where the rave was held in the, in the hangar. Those are actually where they okay. would shelter Ye- bombers right, <laughs> before. Right. But he played and he headlined that stage on the last day so he was the last band to play he was like they were all in high school at the time the really young band he was like 16 and his whole family surprised him and showed up and they were in the front row so when he looks down he sees his little brothers his mom right. and dad and he like got tears in his eyes and it was the biggest show they would ever play because of course they didn't, right not many bands emerged from from that stage muse emerged they're like the only huge band that played right that stage but, you know, that was like this moment. And then they all went and grabbed a piece of the wall together <laughs> and went home. Yeah. So, but, yeah. It's it's oh. on TV. It looked really bad and terrifying because it was um, for sure. Even not being there like and again, pre 9-11 or whatever. I don't know what it what what it, what it felt like to be on the ground and here f- experiencing like a, a tidal wave of like just that kind of destructive energy like in actual like actually being there for it not to say i wish i had been there but 
um, man, you know, uh, it's it's interesting. Makes you to, wonder. Makes you wonder. Yeah, especially you know, um, especially for women who were on the ground when that started happening, it must have been right. very scary. And I mean, there's, I mean, we've gone through them on on different episodes. There are absolutely terrifying stories. Like, I mean, yeah, like when I mentioned to you that, like, no matter what set you watch, you see someone getting grumpy, yeah. with the exception of Mickey Hart. That's the one that we didn't spot one. Oh, tight. Um, but it's there. Like the stories that we've read and pulled up are. Honestly, terrifying. Like, oh, yeah, I mean, no, multiple it, sexual assaults reported during Limp Bizkit's set. I mean, yeah. you know, not, they were reported afterward as having happened during Limp Bizkit's set. Um, and uh, hardly surprising that if they were going to happen, that might have been the place. And yeah, Corn had a really bad one, too. Right. And I don't mean to say that it's Limp Bizkit's fault. Um, never having been on a stage with an audience that size to know what one can see or can't see going on. Um but uh, I did rereading that particular piece uh, about the different, you know, sexual assaults that were that had been filed in the days after. I couldn't help but wonder, like, whatever happened with those cases? Did any of were any of those cases successfully prosecuted? And and what would that look like nowadays versus then? Um, and I hope that all of those victims are okay. Love you. Oh, oh yeah, me too. Yeah, no, that's terrible. Say, I, mean, we I have, hope you. I hope you still can see live music sometimes. You know, we we talk a lot of shit on the show. Like yeah. I feel like we say this almost like every episode when this aspect of it gets brought up. It's like there's nothing funny or anything about that. Like we make jokes, we laugh, all that stuff. This is a very serious thing yeah, it's ab- hard about to, it, and that's honestly the yeah. reason why we wanted to do a podcast about to why we wanted to get the complete story out there good and bad you know what i mean not just the front page of the newspaper yeah no it's 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 It's, good i guess i would say maybe it's a sign of progress that we can all agree that at any festival you know that would be headline news if there were a large number of assaults reported i hope so Um, i feel like they were more concerned about the vandalism honestly back then like i remember there was a a fox news special like tonight at, at 10 uh how police are using the internet to catch vandals from woodstock 99 it's like what about all the fucking people that like yeah. actually hurt people you know yeah yeah totally they're worried about the broken in atms yeah yeah i mean you know it was the next day we went back they had press conferences on site the next day and so we were all back there and it was just like a parade of sort of apologies and excuses and and that was with michael lang exactly and john share yeah um and it just seemed sort of laughable at that point. Like there was like, you have no defense against like how it got that, how it escalated that much. Um, but, and then we all drove back to New York and I typed in the car, typing on a laptop in the car, Fuck. car sick the entire way. <laughs> and you know, the, the thing, the reason why it was laughable, it, it's not because their excuses were so bad. It's because they were trying to make excuses. Like, you know what I mean? Just be like, yeah, we lost total control of this. Yeah. You know what I mean? We never had control from the start. We were underprepared. We learned from. I might actually have audio of that from that press conference. Yeah. And I've seen a little bit of it. Um, Yeah. I would love. I mean, if if you're able to pull that, I would would absolutely love it. But yeah, we've seen a bit of it because we have this great piece of uh, research material. Like when I mentioned to you that we've seen things no one else has. Okay. It's because I have a VHS tape from the Rome, New York Sentinel. Uh, oh damn! And they filmed like a journalist notebook tape where they all sit in a circle and they kind of have a therapy session wow. where they talk about what they saw, and then they show all this footage that they took just walking around on the grounds with a handheld. Wow! And like that's when you see like the press conference, and that's when you see people breaking into ATMs and what they called the mud Nazis, which is all the mud people, and oh and, wow, yeah, and, and everything. So yeah, I, I would love that though. I mean, because they did a press conference 
almost every day. Uh, from, yes. from my understanding, which is which is standard at a festival for there to be. Is it uh, okay? Because yeah, I, I don't it's know. The, yeah. there, you know, because there's people in a media tent all day at every festival anyway. So to have to schedule speakers for them on a daily basis is is pretty standard. Not every festival does it, but like Lollapalooza still does something like that. I think ACL does something like that still as well. Awesome. All right. So we're, we're, we're kind of winding what, what winded it in here when you were researching, like, like when the aftermath was happening, you're reporting on that. Was there anything you learned that like absolutely surprised you or did it all kind of seem like, yeah, that makes sense that that was happening. Or was there something you're like shocked by? Um, no, I wasn't shocked by any of it. I, I don't, you know, it's hard to say what I felt in the moment versus what I feel thinking about it now. Because again, re rereading just that one like follow up article about assaults and thinking about it being me today, um, I think that I felt not at all surprised to have it validated by actual complaints that that what you had been hearing on site that this was going on that that was not just a rumor of the festival and that people had filed complaints and that if anyone filed any complaints, then you knew that there were it was real. Uh, a thousand more that hadn't filed. And I think maybe I felt some sense of not validation, but just all like where you're just like, Oh yeah, my intuition about that was accurate. Um, I but, told you so moment. Well, <laughs> just, just, I don't know. We're just realizing what a, really bad festival it was truly i think that was the dawning realization because when you're in the moment it just seems sort of like what is even what especially for me being new and stuff it's like what even is all of this and then continuing to report on it and having these you know like verifiable reports of what had happened i think felt like a good way of sort of wrapping my head around it right so as as a cultural landmark as as, as we call it what's your overall takeaway just with your own personal memories, just in the retrospect of the history of music, what does Woodstock 99 mean? If anything? Huh? Well, I mean, I guess I should say I spend a lot of time every year on the road at festivals. Still, I spent, I've, I've done many hundreds of hours at festivals since then and definitely didn't know then that that would become a big part of my, of my every year, but Sirius XM broadcast from festivals, every summer and for the past several years we've done enough that you know between june and august it's like you know right. once once a month yeah. at least i'm at a festival so sort of like if you go to a lot of weddings and you have and you're able to <laughs> compare whose buffet was better and how you would do it with the guest book eventually that's me with festivals now so I, i'm you know not jaded but just sort of a little bit like eh, i know how the different ways it might go um and and so it's it's hard not to look at woodstock 99 in the context of that and in the context of modern festival culture and where it has gone wrong at this point in its trajectory. Um, I think Woodstock 99 is a good reminder that uh, not every music festival is a good idea. And it's funny that Woodstock 50, I don't know if it's officially canceled as of this tape. Oh, we're going to get into that in a second. Yeah. I want to, I want to hear what you have to think. Yeah. About, yeah. But, um, I don't know. My theory is still that festival culture is, you know, just like anything, a bubble. And when I was a kid, there were no festivals in in the U.S. Uh, until Lollapalooza. And then that went away. And now it's taken for granted that there's going to be 
super sweet festivals for many months of the year that right, you could potentially yeah, yeah, drive every to season. and people are spoiled to it. Um, and I'm looking forward to it as much as it's been such a blessing for so many of my friends who are artists who can do music professionally and make a decent income because festivals pay. Right. Um, and that I love, but I will not be disappointed when festivals cease to be popular and go away again. Cause they got to, cause that's how bubbles burst or whatever. And I think when they dwindle, the quality will improve, you know, and Woodstock 99 may have been as terrible as it was in part because there wasn't enough festival experience and right. practice happening surrounding like it. An actual infrastructure for how to do that. Right. But it, as anyone who's been to a bad festival in the past, you know, Oh, yeah. Six months to six years can t- can attest the kinds of things that make it bad are the same. It's just like greed, poor planning, lack of consideration for the audience members and for the artists. And, you know, a, a shitty festival is still Woodstock 99 in micro, even if it's just like you're right. It doesn't take assaults and looting to make it bad. I was There's I was plenty of other reasons. I'm for going a to this to festival bad. this weekend, just like Heaven Fest that has all these awesome indie acts and it's happening in long beach at at this park and i was just curious because i like i'm like i want a picture where i'm going so i looked up some photos looked it up on yelp and there are all these people going off on some like <laughs> summer slam from a couple of years ago that apparently was like worst festival ever these people are really mad they went to yelp with their anger oh, man so that was their woodstock 99 yeah. <laughs> everyone has their own personal woodstock 99 <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah. Like whether it's a breakup, whether yeah. it's it's like just a tough money time. Everyone has their no, own. No, it was my personal. first Rolling Stone assignment. I was like, it was literally trial by fire. I went <laughs> to a fire as my first assignment. A fire fest. A fire fest. The original. Yeah, it was. <laughs> I mean, for many years, I would I would talk about how terrible it was. It's not. You're not uh, underestimate. You're not overestimating it here, man. Good. Good. It was I'm, really I'm that, that epically yeah. terrible. Good. Okay. Because, yeah, my next question was to be, do you think the story's worth telling? Or is this like, but I don't know. It's like, it, sometimes I question myself. I'm like, is this dumb? Like, is it? But then, but then, but then I, I see something in the news where I'm like, we could have learned something from Woodstock 99 that, you know what I mean, as a society. But instead we swept it under the rug. But it's like there was so much to learn there just about how the way people interact with each other and the way audience members need to be treated at concerts and this like supply and demand kind of thing that yeah. we need to work out with art. So I, I don't know. Do you think it's worth telling or do you think this is, this is kind of silly? Um, <laughs> well, no, of course I think it's worth telling. Otherwise I wouldn't have fucking come over to Echo Park yeah, on a fucking whatever girl. day it is. What day is it? Wednesday. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, whenever I think about it, I immediately remember that it was one of the most epically terrible things I've experienced or witnessed. It didn't feel much like an experience. It felt like a thing I observed. Um, it didn't feel like anything happened to me during it, but, um, <laughs> but it's crazy that it was as bad as it was um, still still blows my mind when I think about how how bad it was. So, uh, you know, keep fighting the good fight. Yeah. <laughs> well, th- thank you. All right. So now real quick, let's talk Woodstock 50. You said you spent a lot of times at festivals. Are, if it happens, are you going? No, but that's because I and it's not I, like I always have festivals I kind of want to go to any year. And then I just have so many I have to go to that, like, you can't really muster the energy to go to extra ones. I am going to just like heaven fest. Cause uh, I, I didn't have to go to Coachella this year. So I haven't been scarred yet <laughs> by the punishment of being at a music festival. And it's awesome. I shouldn't complain. It's not digging a ditch, no, but it's whatever. A, it's a but labor of love. For it's sure. a labor of love. And when you get to a festival, there are a lot of the things that remind you that harken back to Woodstock 99 or any bad festival where you're like, 
if you're like me and you're kind of Larry David about everything, you're like, oh, God. <laughs> you know, everywhere you go, you're like, oh, God. Yeah, what is you for water? Well, water's free. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do I need a lobster corn dog? I mean, yes, it's delicious, but <laughs> give me some practical food. Oh, uh, you know, does I, everyone have to wear the same outfit? Please, festival goers, it's oppressive. <laughs> they, it's aesthetically they oppressive. They feel like they do. What did you eat at Woodstock 99, if you can remember? It's talking about lobster corn dogs. They definitely didn't have that. I really think the only options were burgers and pizza, you know? That, so that, I that's probably ate burgers hearing. and pizza. And again, I was, I, like, I feel like an asshole complaining because I do get to be really cloistered from, like, the typical bullshit at festivals. And I wouldn't be able to, my anxiety would prevent me from being at festivals if I couldn't be sort of if you in a working, less populated yeah. zone. Um, but <laughs> so I don't really ever have to eat too much of the food. I should shut the fuck up. About. <laughs> and lobster corn dogs are delicious. It's just one of those where I'm like, wow, we've achieved peak festival when something that's this luxury, indulgent, like what I call disgusting, licious. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. Yes. No, yeah. yeah, you're right. It's like, where do we go from here? You know, we have lobster corn dogs now. So Woodstock 50, they're going through all these problems. Uh, the first problem that happened was the payments were delayed to the artist to put down the deposit to schedule them. Then they got those. Then the black keys dropped off due to a scheduling conflict. And now the initial investors, the company pulled out, pulled all the money out and announced that it was canceled. Michael Lang didn't announce that the company backing him did. So he now he's saying that it's going. What happened? What do you think's going on? Personal opinion. Do you think it's just going to are we prepping for another 99 or another fire? It's not going to happen. It, the festival won't happen. I agree. It also I didn't realize initially that the site they were going to have it on is the same site as Fish had to cancel their festival last year because. Of, yeah. yeah what because was, of it was like a logistic issue, but it had to do with the height hy- with hygiene and safety and. And with fish uh, fans. Hygiene. Yeah, I think it, <laughs> it, it. I don't I mean, I don't remember. I don't I don't know. But uh, someone reminded me of that. Before they canceled, I was I had been hearing some things before they canceled that maybe there were some problems. And I think people started sussing that out when they pushed back the on sale date for the tickets. Like, wait, what's going on here? Right. And then that's what fucked them out of the the permit, because the venue needed like if you book a like event that size. Right. They require you to sell tickets a certain amount of time before. Right. And because they didn't do that, they pulled their permit and then the investors pulled the money out. Yeah. And this happened at the original Woodstock and at ninety nine. Yeah, I don't see it happening at this point because there's too much risk of uh, if anything at all goes wrong when they knew that they were pushing it by trying to get it done past these like widely observed deadlines for a safe festival. And I hope they don't put it on because they sh- it would be a Shonda if they did yeah. <laughs> because they ha- they need to o- they need have a lot of making up to do for not keeping people safe. The people who were harmed at Woodstock '99. That's forever, you know. Right. Yeah. So absolutely. they owe. They're in the hole. They got to get. They got a long distance to dig to prove that they care about the safety of a crowd. And so, I think it's probably in their own best interest not to push their luck with that at this point. And I hope that they don't. You know. Yeah. Um, and also because it does make for definitely a better plot twist. If yeah. well, we call it the Woodstock curse. Every Woodstock has had a curse. God bless. We have enough festivals. All of those artists play at other festivals. I love many of them, but you know, you can see those artists elsewhere. And Michael Lang, dude, stop. <laughs> Learn your lesson.
Yeah, the the mother of Woodstock '99. All right, well, it's been awesome having you on. Thanks this for was killer, me. major piece of the puzzle, if you will. <laughs> You're an architect of the narrative of Woodstock '99 <laughs> uh, in your own way. Yeah. So, yeah. with that being said, if you went to, worked at, or played at Woodstock '99, please contact us at podcast99official at gmail.com or on Instagram at podcast99. For exclusive content, you can also find us on Patreon.com/slash Culture Dumps. We'd like to thank Gray Holger at Contradict Sound for all of his technical assistance. Jenny Alescu, you can listen to her show, LSQ, on on all podcast it's platforms, everywhere. I'm assuming. Yep. And uh, thanks, and we'll see you at Woodstock.